Well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to John chapter 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 13 and also look at those same verses this morning. John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. If you'd like, I'm also going to read out of Leviticus 23, the institution of the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's Leviticus 23 at verse 39. If you'd like to put a finger in that, that's where we'll start. Before we read uh, the passages and consider them, let's pray together. Our Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit, and we know that He moved men to write the words in front of us, and we need Him to illumine our minds and our hearts so that what we read and what we hear uh, can be perceived by us and understood by us. So we ask that You'd pour Him out richly into our hearts and lives, uh, open us up, convict us where we need convicting, rebuke us, encourage us, humble us, lift us up, whatever we need, so that we might become more and more like Your Son. And this we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Right, Leviticus uh, 23 at verse 39 down through verse 43. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and bows of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God." And then our uh, text today, uh, John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So brothers and sisters of Hope Church and everyone listening uh, uh, today, uh, I want to just begin by noticing something sort of uh, whether John intended this or not. In John chapter 6, verse 66, we're told after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So they 
They were no longer walking, peripateoing, being with him, being near him. They were no longer walking with him. And then we're told in John 7, 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee, or he walked, literally the same word, he walked in Galilee. And whether or not John was intending this, it's an interesting thing to notice that many of Jesus' disciples, his so-called disciples, didn't walk with him, but he continued to walk in their midst in Galilee. Now, he wasn't going to go down to Judea yet, but he didn't just hold off somewhere and go away from them. They rejected him, but he continued to walk among them, though they weren't walking with him and making himself available to them. Uh, maybe a, a word picture or at least a portrait of how loving our Savior is, that you reject him and he continues to minister and be among those same people. Turn him down and he continues to go after. Truly, God is a seeking God who came to seek and save the lost including walking among and seeking the people who said, we've had enough of you. And Jesus doesn't say then, well, then I've had enough of you. He continues to walk among them and live among them in Galilee. And as we walk through this passage, maybe a better title would have been simply characteristics of unbelief. Jesus uh, is encountering it in his uh, biological half-brothers. And there are some principles here that we're going to notice or some things we're going to notice, some characteristics of their unbelief among the other people's unbelief uh, in Jerusalem when Jesus goes down to the feast that I'd like us to notice, and particularly five things. There's, uh, there's six that I could come up with. I think we have time to deal with uh, five. The first is this. Unbelief is confused about Christ. Uh, secondly, unbelief is no respecter of persons. Third, unbelief doesn't speak against the world's evils. Four, unbelief refuses to wait on God. And then five, unbelief tries to make this world home. So characteristics of unbelief as seen particularly in Jesus' brothers. The first one is unbelief is confused about Jesus Christ. We're actually starting at the end in verse 12. There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Uh, this is what the people in Jerusalem were saying about him. Jesus had gone down to the feast. His brother said, let's go now. Let's go publicly, right? In the sort of caravan-like way that you would go with all your family members. And Jesus said, no, my time hasn't fully yet come. I'm not going down. <laughs> Meaning, I'm not going down in that way. And eventually, verse 10, Jesus says he, he, he's going down. We're told he actually goes down to the feast, but privately. So his brother said, make a big stink, go publicly. Jesus said, no, I'm not, that's not how I'm going. I'm not going down that way. And so he goes down privately. And while he's down there, he's hearing people say different things about him. Oh, he's a good person. No, he's leading people astray. And no one really understood Jesus or got it right. Because to say that Jesus is simply a good man is to miss the point. And what John's been saying throughout his whole gospel, what Jesus has been saying, I'm, I'm God in the flesh, not just a good man. Truly only God is good. Jesus said that as well. Why are you calling me good? Only God is good. But he's much more than just a good man. Jesus is God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth, the second person of the Trinity through whom all creation was made, standing in front of people physically. That's, that's who he is. And others are saying, well, he, no, he's not a good man. He's actually leading people astray. And you could argue there was an element of truth in that because if you'd say the Jewish teachers were leading them rightly, then Jesus was leading them astray from the Jewish teachers. He was showing them the way, the only way. But indeed, Jesus wasn't leading anybody astray ultimately. He was showing them 
the real way to be saved, which was to believe in him. And down to this day, people have a lot of stuff to say, beloved. I don't want to spend much time on this because John will spend more time talking about it later. And we've already spent a little bit of time looking at it. People say different things about Jesus. If you're a Mormon, you'll say that, you know, Jesus is great, but he wasn't the ultimate prophet. You got to have Joseph Smith after him. Uh, uh, Muslims will say the same thing. Sure, believe what you want about Jesus, but you need a Muhammad to come after him and show the true way. Lots of people saying, yeah, Jesus is a good guy. Maybe he just went a, a step or two too far. Truly, he was kind. He was gentle. He was loving because they get rid of all the other stuff that he said. You're dead. <laughs> You're sinners. You need me. They don't like that. They just put that on the side and say he was a good man. And other people think Jesus is out there in left field. Unbelievers and the heart of unbelief can't wrap their minds around who Christ is. And that's what Jesus is seeing in the crowds. He's seeing it in the conversations, hearing it in the conversations of the people in Jerusalem at the Feast of Booze. They don't know who he is. A good man leading the people astray. God in the flesh come to save everyone who believes in him. He's the savior of the world. The second thing I want us to notice is that unbelief is no respecter of persons. If you look at verse five, we're told, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now we're told in Matthew 13 verse 56 are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. So we're talking about Jesus' biological half-brothers. He also had biological uh, uh, half-sisters. So uh, we're told that not even his brothers believed in him, speaking of his biological half-brothers uh, who were born to uh, Joseph and Mary uh, biologically. What's interesting about this is Jesus' biological half-brothers grew up in the same house as the Lord Jesus Christ. They would have been around him uh, frequently uh, beholding him and all that he did. They would have obviously uh, known there was a big difference between them and Jesus. We're not told what their reaction to that was, but they were raised by the same parents that were uh, in the same house. They went through the same catechism lessons wherever they were. They heard the same prayers being prayed. They read the same Bible passages together. They went to the same worship services, whatever that looked like in their day, same synagogue teaching. They went through all that stuff the same. And yet here at this point in Jesus' Galilean ministry, his brothers still don't believe. They still don't understand who the Messiah was that they studied about in the Old Testament. They don't know it's Jesus Christ. They've gone through all, this religious, all these religious privileges. They've had all of them. And yet they don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not even his brothers believed in him. And we know later on, it seems as though they do come to know him. But at this point, they still don't believe. This is something along the lines of what we looked at recently with regard to Judas Iscariot. It's a bit scary, a bit sobering regarding anyone who's had a lot of religious privileges. Because what this communicates to us is that we can be very near Jesus Christ and yet be entirely lost. We can be very close to him. I mean, how do you get closer to Jesus than for 30 years or so, you're around him in the same household, as it were, very close quarters, and yet don't believe in him. I remember a couple of years ago, I was talking to somebody and asked them if they were a believer, just their own testimony. I said, yeah, you know, of course I'm a believer. Um, my parents are Christians. I was raised in a church. They had me baptized. I did the whole Christian school thing. And, uh, and, and I go to church now. Yeah, I'm a believer. And... Uh, what they had described was indeed a lot of religious privileges, but actually had nothing to do with whether or not they're a believer. So I remember asking them, you know, so what's your relationship with 
Christ, it sounds like you've had a lot of good stuff going on in your life, which is wonderful, all these privileges, but what is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? And, and it was sadly just, uh, there, there was nothing else to say on, on, from, from him regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. Seems like there was no relationship going on there at all. Love it, it's possible to have the greatest pedigree, the greatest privileges to be raised in a Christian home, have Christian parents do family devotions at night, sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, um, be catechized, know the Bible, have so many passages memorized, go to church every week, and still not be saved. All that is very possible. It, it's a hard thing to swallow. It, it's difficult to say, well, well, what does that mean for me then? If I've had all these religious privileges, is Jesus saying I'm not a Christian? Are his brothers evidence that you can't be a Christian? If you have those, no, no, not at all. What they're saying is it's sort of an implicit warning like a shot across the bow, Jesus saying this, I don't care how familiar you are with me. I don't care if you know what time I go to bed at night, what time I get up in the morning. I don't care if you've lived in the same house with me as my biological half-brothers. I don't care if you're just meeting with my people and singing all the songs that you like to sing and going through all the Christian motions. What I do care about and was absolutely important and vital for your life, your eternal life, is whether or not you know me as Lord and Savior. That's what Jesus, that's what his brothers are being confronted with. That's what's on these pages stands out. Even his biological half-brothers don't believe in him. So the question for us is not how many privileges have we been able to enjoy religiously, but do we know Jesus Christ? Do we believe in him or not? That's the, the issue. Unbelief also, thirdly, doesn't speak against the world's evils. If you look at verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Again, some, it, what Jesus is saying is very simple. The world cannot hate his biological half-brothers at this point. Why not? Because they're part of the world. They don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ at this point on their lives. But Jesus says, but the world does hate me because I testify that its works are evil. And if you compare John's gospel where the ultimate sin is the sin of unbelief, the ultimate evil in the world is that the Son of God came into the world and the world rejected him, so unbelief. Uh, if you compare that with the other gospel writers where uh, there's a different kind of evil that Jesus speaks about, the world's evils, um, I think passions of the flesh, things you can be thrown in jail for, those sorts of things. I think you could divide the world's evils up into two different sort of categories. We'll call it the religious category and then the rebellious or the non-religious category of evil. And uh, one, let me, let's just look at the religious category of evil first that Jesus testifies against. In John 6, 28, uh, people in the crowds are saying, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Basically asking, what does God want us to do in order to be saved? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So Jesus saying, this is, this, is, this is what you need. You have to believe in me. And all of your works to try and save yourselves are, are evil. They're not the works of God. They're your own works. They're part of unbelief. They're a problem. And Jesus testifies against it over and over and over again, including even with Nicodemus. You have to be born again, Nicodemus. You can't come here and compliment me and think that means something that that saves you. You need to be born again. So in John's gospel, the greatest evil in the world, or one of the greatest evils in the world, is the religious evil 
of going through the motions, trying to save yourself, yet refusing to believe in Jesus Christ that you might be saved. It's still down to this day, uh, a great evil. The notion that everyone who does good things is going to heaven, that everyone who is nice and goes to church and reads their Bible has eternal life, though they don't believe in Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees thought their obedience, their study of the Bible earned them heaven, and Jesus exposed that evil work they were doing. And sometimes, you know, we as believers are tempted to think the real problem of evil in this world is the stuff that fills newspapers, makes headlines, uh, as part of court cases that land people in jail. What Jesus is saying, though, is, hey, look, uh, what is maybe even a greater evil is that people sit in my churches, they do all these great, righteous, religious things. They go out and they be really great people in the world, but they refuse to believe in me. They will not believe in me. And Jesus testifies against that over and over and over again. You need me. What are the works of God? To believe in me. <laughs> That's the work of God. That's what everybody needs. So um, I, I remember it was, it's been years ago now. Can't remember exactly the, how the conversation went, but talking to a, 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 at the time, a Christian lady, she said she had a crisis of faith when she was going out into the world, meeting a lot of non-Christians and they were nicer than she was. And she had gone to church her whole life. She was a professing Christian and she was astounded, shook and rattled. It was like an earthquake in her spiritual world. She said, these people don't believe in Jesus. They say they don't believe in Jesus, but they are way kinder. They are way more servant-hearted on the, on the outside. They're doing way more things than I am. And I'm in the church and I'm professing to believe in Jesus. She thought, how can this be? How can these people do this? Like, what is, what is wrong with them? What's wrong with me? And God used that to create in her a spiritual earthquake so that she realized everything I've been doing is no different than them. I've been doing it to save myself. I don't have any idea why they've been doing their good works, but I've been doing my good works to save myself. And so I can never do enough. So all I see is the best that other people do and compare myself to them, thinking I have to continue to outdo them. I have to do more and more if I'm going to be saved. I have to be better than these people. Because if they're not Christians and they're doing all that, I need way more to be a Christian. And she was beating herself up until she came to realize I never was a believer. All these works that I were doing were evil. They were wicked. Why? Because they were 100% selfish. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Look how much better I am than the world. Look how great I am. God, you've got to save me. And she became convicted of it. Those are some of the evil works that Jesus testifies against in the world. They're all programs of self-salvation. God, I'm a good person. I'm a kind person. Surely this is going to work out well for me in the end, even though I don't believe in your son. Jesus testifies against that. But he also testifies against irreligious evil works. And uh, unbelief can't handle this. Jesus came to call sinners, not righteous people, to repentance. And so when Jesus goes around, he doesn't just let people go off the hook. He's, he's, he's confronting people in their sin. He's calling them out in their sin, saying, yeah, you need, you need to repent. You need to turn to me. You need to trust in me to be saved. And even like, we'll, we'll get it in just a moment. At the end of John, or right around John chapter 8, 
when the woman who is brought to him in adultery, he doesn't say, go and do whatever you want. He says, no, go and sin no more. You're, you're, you're free to go. You're forgiven, but you can't live that lifestyle anymore. So Jesus confronts sin head on. And the world can't handle that. The world says, I can maybe accept a Jesus who's going to pay for my sins and who's going to be really kind and loving and give me a great example. But don't tell me that I can't live however I want to sexually. Don't tell me that I can't live for the sake of my tongue and stomach. Don't tell me that I can't live according to the passions of it. Don't tell me I can't live for money. Don't tell me I can't live for my career. Don't tell me I can't live for the praise of men. Don't tell me any of that. If you don't, then I can live for Jesus. But Jesus comes in and says, look, the world hates me. Why? Because when I see people living in rebellion against God, I say something. I testify about it. I say, look, that's sinful. That's wrong. Turn to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. I'll give you rest. You won't find rest in this world. You won't find rest in your sin and your wicked ways. So beloved, as we go out into this world being Christ's followers, we can expect that there will be hatred from the world toward us when we live as believers and when we call people to repent and trust in Christ, when we make Christ the issue. Now there's, there's a way to go about this. We're actually, we're the problem and the world doesn't hate us because of Jesus. They hate us because of us, because we're obnoxious. But when we go out into this world and love people and go out into this world and get to know people and say, look, you're lost. You're in misery. What you're doing is sinful. And, and, and I, can't, I hate to see you living your life this way. Let me show you Christ. You can be forgiven of your sins, but you have to turn from these wicked ways. You've got to turn from your rebellion against God. You're running from Him. This isn't about you and me. This isn't between you and me. <laughs> this is between you and God. You're rebelling against Him. Turn to Him. He's a loving God. He'll forgive all of your sins. Believe in his son and you'll be saved. Beloved, the world in general will not like that message. Will not like the message of you got to repent and come to Jesus Christ. So unbelief will, unbelief refuses to speak against uh, the evil things of the world. The next thing unbelief refuses to do is to wait on God. Unbelief is by nature impatient. If you look at verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand, so, or therefore, his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea. Jesus says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. And then verse 8, he says, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So the feast is now, his brothers are saying, look, now you got to go public. You got to go back there. Um, you got to go do your thing uh, in Jerusalem. Go do your miracles. You'll please the crowds. You'll get your following back. Uh, you got to go now. Now's the time to make it happen. And Jesus says, no, my time has not yet fully come. So his unbelieving brothers are looking at the world saying, now's the time. And Jesus is saying, nope, now is not the time. His unbelieving brothers say, look, here's your opportunity. Jesus says, no, that's not my opportunity. So they're impatient. They're driving him to do things. And Jesus is saying, no, I've actually got a different timetable than you do. You think your timetable is now. Everything's got to happen right now for you. I'm on my father's timetable. When he says, go, I go. I haven't got a word from him to go yet. So I'm not going anywhere. But this highlights one characteristic of unbelief. Namely, that is, it is impatient. And it also highlights something about when God works. 
God may work slower than what people want, but when he works, he never ever disappoints in his work. Uh, for example, in Galatians 4, 4, we're told, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, some people will say, look, why, why didn't God send his son into the world right after Adam and Eve sinned? Why, why was when the time had fully come thousands of years later? What took the Lord so long? And our response would be, well, I have no idea why the Lord planned it that way. But when he does come in his own time, not our time, he lays down the life of his son so that we could be adopted as sons. If that's what he's going to do for us when he shows up in his own time, then why would any of us complain? Unbelief says, God, you've got to operate on my timetable. And, and believers say, no, Lord, I'm operating in your timetable. That's where Jesus is. It's not his time to go. But if God waits and God doesn't do things, giving people immediate gratification, but says, wait, wait, wait to his people, and he does amazing things far exceeding our expectations, then why would any of us ever say, God, you have to come and do this right now? You remember Jairus' daughter? Jairus' daughter, got to come quickly. My daughter's not doing well. She's almost dead. <laughs> what does Jesus do? Slows everything down. <laughs> Jesus, come quickly. Almost like he just intentionally just stops. <laughs> and if he was walking fast, now he's walking half the pace. Plenty of time. Heal another woman with an issue of blood. And then he gets the word, look, daughter's dead. Don't even bother coming. And then Jesus shows up and we get a resurrected daughter out of the dead. If Jesus had come sooner, there would be no woman with an issue of blood for years that had been cured against, uh, in spite of all the doctors that had tried to help her. And we just get a person healed rather than resurrected from the dead. So if God says, wait, it's always for our good, beloved. If God says, my time is not right now, my time's coming later, and, and he always impresses us when he comes later, then it helps us to learn to wait on him. Unbelief refuses to wait on God. But Jesus says, no, I'm on his timetable. And, and look, some people say, why did it take so long for Jesus to go to the cross? Why didn't God send him there? Well, again, our answer, we don't know. God wanted to display his patience. We know that, but we don't know all the reasons why God said this is going to happen over a thousand years. But if when Jesus Christ does come on God's time, we end up with sins forgiven, we get eternal life, all of this free of charge at Jesus' expense, then God, you can take as long as you want. And you can take forever. Then you can take thousands of years more. And God, you can wait to bring heaven for 10 million years, because I know that when it does come, it will have been more than worth the wait. That's what Jesus is thinking as he's walking through. That's what believers are called to think. Unbelief can't get its mind around this. His brothers can't figure this out. Now's your time. Jesus says, nope, my time hasn't fully come. What does this have to do with the, the Feast of Tabernacles? What does this have to do with waiting on God? Well, this. If Jesus had gone down to the Feast of Tabernacles and the Jews would have killed him, we'd have not had, let's say they killed him via stoning, let's say they killed him via some other method, we did not have a Savior. We did not have things gone according to God's plan. Why did Jesus need to wait? Why does he say it's not time for me to go down there publicly? And then he goes down there privately. 
because Jesus is thinking, you know what? It'll be time for me to go down to Jerusalem publicly in about six months. There's another feast, and it's called the Passover feast. It's one of the three feasts along with the Feast of Booze that all the Jewish males had to go to in Jerusalem. Jesus is saying, that will be time for me to come in there publicly. And he does, right? For the world to see. Palm Sunday, the crowds, Hosanna in the highest. <laughs> Here's our king. Everybody knows it. This isn't no private entrance. This is Jesus Christ coming in publicly. And at that time was the time where he would fulfill being the Lamb of God. Because there's another Passover going on that the Jews are doing where they have a Passover lamb, an emblematic one. It's slain at the exact same time. Jesus is outside the, saying to Telestai, which is what the high priest would say, it's finished. And he's fulfilling the Passover saying, I'm the way to be saved. Jesus says, my time is not now. Why not? Because I've got a lot to fulfill. Every jot and every tittle. I've got to fulfill the Passover feast. I've got to fulfill that in order for people to be saved. Beloved, that's what God's time is all about. His brothers didn't understand it. You got to go public now. You got to get your crowds back. Jesus said, I'm not here to get crowds. I'm here to save people. I'm here to go to Jerusalem in public and die for the sake of my people on a cross, not via stoning, not any other way, on a cross so that my people can be saved. That's why the timing is so important. Let me just mention a couple things before we look at the, the final point. If Jesus had gone to the Feast of Tabernacles and the Jews had killed him there uh, via stoning or some other way, we would be out a savior. But the second thing I want to look at is that God never disappoints those who wait on his redemption. 1 Corinthians 2, 9, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Beloved, part of the Christian life is waiting. We're waiting like the Thessalonians, waiting for the revelation of God our Savior, waiting for, the, for Christ to come in all of his glory. And sometimes it's hard to wait. We say, Lord, I want you to be glorious. I want you to do marvelous things right here and right now. And God says, well, that's great, but I've got a different plan. My plan's unfolding. Christ is coming. We're, we're waiting for his second return, not his first coming, as in the passage of John. We're not waiting for his death anymore. We're waiting, waiting for his final coming. And beloved, it's going to be worth it. Whenever God shows up, he always far exceeds the expectations of his people. Far exceeds them. The people were just looking for a political messiah. Just help us beat Rome. Give us some really good guns or something. Like give us technology. Give us some way where we can take down Rome. And Jesus like, Rome? What? what? I'm talking about whole new heavens and earth. I'm talking about eternal life, not just life and then you die after 70 years. I'm talking about something way bigger than what you all are thinking. Beloved, it's hard to wait. But one thing we do know about when Christ comes again, he's... He exceeded everybody's expectations the first time, blew them out of the water, so much so they couldn't even fathom who he was. When God comes a second time, when Christ comes a second time, he's going to far exceed any of our expectations. And it will, be, it will more than make up for any pain that we've had in waiting for him. Unbelief says, God, you got to make my life better now. Do this now. Belief says, I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm going to wait for him. And it's going to be amazing when he shows up. But the... Last thing I want to look at, and maybe the most important, relevant to the passage, is unbelief tries to make this world home, verses 2 to 3. Now the Jewish feast of booze was at hand, so his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. So the disciples 
Jesus' brothers saying, look, this world, you got to make your splash in this world. Uh, you you got to go do this. You got to do your miracles. Uh, you got to do this right here in this world uh, right now. And this is a striking contrast between Jesus Christ, who's an itinerant preacher, and it's the Feast of Tabernacles, which is really a celebration of homelessness. <laughs> because when the Israelites were in the wilderness, they were living in tents. And so the Feast of Booths is every year for a week, I want you to set up booths on your rooftops, or if you're from out of town, you can set them up around Jerusalem. Set up your booths or your tents or put them in the streets somewhere and go in these things for a week and live there. So you can be reminded that when I brought the Israelites out of Egypt, they were living in tents. They were basically homeless. So it's a feast celebrating homelessness and God's care over his homeless people while they were in those booths. And, and Jesus' brothers are saying, make this your home. Set up this amazing ministry. Go down to Jerusalem. Get all your disciples back. Get all your disciples back. And Jesus was tempted to make this world his home. If you look at verse four, they said, if your miracles are real, then do them for all the world to see. Does this sound familiar? One commentator pointed this out. If your miracles are real, then do them for all the world to see. It sounds like if you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. If the son of God, jump off the temple, right? Temptations, the devil is lurking here in the words of his biological half-brothers. Jesus is being tested. Jesus would have been especially sensitive to this temptation as well because he had just gone from massive crowds to nobody left. We got the 12. We got a, probably a few other disciples who are with him, but the crowds are all gone. That would, that would hurt any human being. If you were getting a ministry going and your crowds went from 20,000 people to let's say a few hundred or a couple hundred or maybe a few dozen. What his brothers are saying is go down to Jerusalem if your works are real and do them for your disciples. Why? Because you can get that crowd back. Ooh, this is a strong temptation, beloved. You can get your glory back, Jesus. This world can be your home. You can get something permanent going on or something lasting going on here. His brothers didn't understand. Jesus is an itinerant preacher. It's at the Feast of Booths. What an ironic situation. Make this world your home in a very feast where God says this world is not your home. You're gonna live in a tent. His brothers didn't understand it. Unbelief doesn't understand it. So much so, A.W. Pink said this regarding verse four. If you do these things, show yourself to the world how these words betrayed Jesus' brothers' hearts. They were men of the world. Consequently, they adopted its ways, spoke its language, and employed its logic. Show yourself to the world, man, to accompany us to Jerusalem. Work some startling miracle before the great crowds who will be assembled there. And thus, not only make yourself the center of attraction, but convince everyone you are the Messiah. It was the pride of life displaying itself. And how much of this same pride of life we see today, even among those who profess to be followers of that one whom the world crucified. But over against his brothers who were saying, make this world your home, make a lasting ministry here, Jesus had an entirely different plan. Because God has a plan, beloved, to give us a home. He really does. He really has a plan to take us home, to give us a place of security where we are loved and respected by the crowds, where we are adored, as it were, and we finally have a place to call home. And we're not living in booze and in tents. And here's how badly God wants us back, that he would do this. 
John 1.14, the word became flesh and tabernacled or boothed among us. Jesus didn't just keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus is the Feast of Tabernacles. He is the feast. He is that celebration. He is God coming to fulfill this Feast of Tabernacles. God living with us in a tent, an earthly tent that's perfect. God come to dwell with us. Why? Why would he come down to dwell with us? Why would God become homeless? Why would the Son of God become homeless? Why would he do this? So we could be brought home. Why would he undergo all the shame? Why would he leave his home in heaven, that perfect abode? Why would he undergo any of this stuff? Why would he dwell in a booth in this 33-year earthly ministry that he had? Why would he do that? Because he wants us to have a permanent home, a place that he's gone to prepare for us now. That's in heaven. That's in the Father's mansion. Jesus Christ became homeless so we could be brought home. Hebrews 13, 12 Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. What does this mean? It means we're not home yet. It means this world is not our home. It means what the Jews were celebrating uh, in the Feast of Booze, what Jesus showed when he came here in this earthly tabernacle, and resurrected and left and ascended and left and said, I'm coming back to get you. It means that we're not home yet. And God wants us to realize this, to live like it. We're nomads in this world. We're pilgrims in this world. Beloved, God puts us in this world for maybe 70, 80 years and we're done. And the place we live won't even remember us anymore. That's a, that's a stark word from the Lord. It's place remembers us not. So in 200 years, who will remember that we were even here? Almost nobody and God wants us living for a different world, a place where we have a real home. The New Testament speaks of this, Hebrews 11, verse 9. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land living in tents. Why? Because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then later on in verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Unbelief says this world is our home. Make as big a splash as you can. Get all the praise and all the glory you can. God says this world is not your home for my people. Belief says I've got a different place I'm going to. I'm passing through this world. I'm going to work diligently for the Lord while I'm in this world. And I'm going to be loving my neighbors while I yet have life and I'm able to do this. But I'm looking for an eternal home. And that's where I'm heading. That's what Jesus' brothers didn't understand. It's what the crowds didn't understand. It's what so many people with blinders on today don't understand because they're lost. This world is not all there is. Do you think it is? Do you and I live like it is? Because of so beloved, we have to repent of our own unbelief, as it were. Or we're saying this world is all there is, because God's saying, no, it isn't. In fact, this world is such a small blip in time compared to eternally what I'm preparing for my people. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon called The True Christian's Life, A Journey Toward Heaven. He had these three applications that I want to close with just uh, for our own thoughts as we look at what it is to live in this world uh, even though we're living for another world. Labor to get a sense of the vanity of this world. 
The Feast of Tabernacles is about this, the temporary nature of this life. We ought not to be content with this world or to set our hearts on this world's enjoyments. Second, labor to be much acquainted with heaven, to long for the appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ought to so desire heaven that at any moment God should take us to himself. We should leave our entire life behind willingly and cheerfully. And then one more, let us help each other on that journey toward heaven. Let us be faithful travel companions, talking about the journey's end and assisting one another to that end. Let's pray.